Hey there, deviants. We hope you're feeling the love because we're definitely feeling it here. Get ready for another episode of Dark and Devious. everyone hey yes welcome back uh to another episode of dark and devious as chris noted we're feeling the love here and that's just because we've had some some great support from you our listeners lately yeah we've had some really nice reviews uh interactions with listeners uh we want to first shout out to allison who not only just had uh, some really nice feedback, she was really interested in last week's episode about famous last words and had some really great suggestions, which got my brain going. So I'm really excited to look into some of those suggestions. Yes, um, I, I already know... What I want to do. Yeah. And not not in my next episode, because that's already picked out. Okay, that's right. But you were telling me that you were kinda you were you were kinda joused about two cases. This today is being one and then you got another one lined up. Yep. So then the third one I can do for Allison. Okay, so yeah. So hang in there, Allison. Yeah. It, well, come. I'm sure. She seems to be enjoying it, so she'll be thrilled, I'm sure, when she Here's whatever story you end up picking. Uh-huh. And um, thank you to your co-worker, Joe. Yes. Joe, who I absolutely adore. Left a lovely review yeah. on iTunes, which anyone can do at yes. any time. Just on Apple Podcasts. Yes. They did a really wonderful job. So thank you so much, Joe. I appreciate your review so much. Um, so encourage everyone, as always, and check that out. Yeah. You know, always like, rate, and review. We love that. <laughs> and then also we need to uh, welcome our newest uh, deviants to the club. Yes, yes. We have um, Luxembourg. Yeah, that's a new one. That was a surprise. It was, as well as Italy and Switzerland. Yes, yes. So welcome, yeah. everyone from the european nations right i know it's uh we it's it's like we suddenly got a little central european boost like right down the middle Mm -hmm. i think uh we need some baguettes and vodka to celebrate (laughs) to celebrate our european uh explosion yeah oh my gosh just well any any european pastry at all will do sure yeah bring them on oh man that just makes me want to go back i was I definitely need to explore Switzerland, though. I've only had a layover there, so mm. I only know the airport in Zurich. <laughs> right, yeah. I've only, you know, I've traveled so much throughout Asia. Uh-huh. I've, I've just barely dabbled in all the other continents, Oh, though, so. that's really cool that, I mean, I've, I've had more experience with Europe. And that I, that's cool that you've had more experience with Asia, because that's someplace I... I wouldn't even know where to start. Mm. But that's so cool that you've gotten to go to so many of those places. Yeah, so I, I really need to 
get into the European and the South Americans uh, countries as well. Right. And, and Let also, us come crash with you, yes, <laughs> listeners. <please>. And, <laughs> and not to forget Africa and Australia, too. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 fun having a global network of yeah, listeners. Yeah, I know. I One of these days. <laughs> global tour. Global Someday. tour. Which is why we need donations. Yeah, right. <laughs> Wouldn't that be fun? Be like, send us to your house. We'll yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, I'm trying to think any fun stories from this week. You were saying you were really... We've both I've, been busy this I've week. I've been so busy. So I'm an omnivore, which for those of you that don't know, it's... So you eat both meat and plants? Um, that's an omnivore. Oh, sorry. My mistake. <laughs> uh, I'm an omnivert, which is I'm not an introvert. I'm not an extrovert. <laughs> I like, I enjoy both. Yeah. Okay. Um, and lately I've just been like very social and it's exhausting for <laughs> me. Like seriously, I just want like three solid days where I don't have to see anybody. No offense to you, Chris. But right. It's like... No, I get it. Uh, sometimes when your social calendar is starting to fill up, it is it, like you have, you don't feel like your time away from work or your rest time is really restful. Right. I think it's been a solid week where I have not had a social or where I've had a social event like every day. I'm like, I... I'm just tired. <laughs> I'm very tired of people in the best way. Yeah. Like they've all been very good experiences. Yeah. But it I... takes a lot of emotional energy yes. to to be a social person and some people they get their energy from social interactions and I don't know. I I feel like I'm kind of in the same boat. Like I love my alone time. I love being around groups of people and with friends and stuff. But sometimes it can be a little overwhelming when there's a lot of of things of obligations so uh-huh. yep well so hopefully after we're done recording you can just like curl up in a ball and just rest if you I'm going to watch some trashy TV that's um, a good way to yeah. unwind i found this extremely mindless stupid show that i've like it's been my escape from <laughs> from my social life uh, it's on netflix it's called 21 again oh okay and it's it's in Britain, and it's these young Gen Z gals aged, like, 16 to 21. And then they give their moms, like, a makeover to, like, look and act like they're 21 again. It is <laughs> it is so stupid. It sounds, but... like, kind of endearing, though. Like, a little, like, kind of adorable that they want to give their moms a makeover. Well, they want their moms to, like, understand what it's like to be young now. Because, oh, like, okay. Because apparently, like older millennial parents are like super judgmental of their Gen Z <laughs> children apparently this, I, this is a thing i don't know wow um, okay but yes that's been my escape that's been your 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 escape from the... people wanting to talk to me which i'm just like stop talking to me <laughs> anyways i could go on how are you <laughs> <laughs> no i've been very busy but i've been good i've been working almost every day well i have been working every day since the last time we recorded so that's been very uh, eventful, I guess, just nonstop. But, oh, I, there is that story that I wanted to tell you last time, and I, and I forgot 
to mention it. Yes, please do. So I had another a little ghost update. So this was now a couple weeks ago. I was brushing my teeth. And so obviously I was alone in the bathroom and uh, I, I was like brushing my teeth. I turned off the water and then I look away for half a second and all of a sudden the water is back on again, which is just like really creepy because I'm like, I uh, like I know I did not do that and I I didn't see the knob turn or anything like that. It was just very unnerving, but I I feel like I've got a good sense of humor about it. I was like, okay, I see you. Can you turn it off now? And of course it didn't turn off by itself, but I was like, okay, I'll give you this one and I'll turn it back off. But you know, maybe your ghost friend is like trying to reach out. Yeah, maybe, I don't know. Maybe they think I'm making a big mistake on something or, or maybe they're, I don't know. I can't think of anything. I don't know, but I, I, I do find it very fascinating. As everyone knows, like I love paranormal stuff, <laughs> so I I'm excited for you to have this right. ghost. Like I'm a little jealous. Right. Well, and the fact that it's been like a like a like a non frightening experience. Like I don't like I don't feel uncomfortable at all in my home. I don't feel like I'm being watched or anything like that. It's just occasionally like a little weird thing that I can't explain happens and mm-hmm. uh yeah so that it hasn't been too bad and, and nothing has happened since then you know I'm starting to get to the point where I'm like should I be greeting them when I get home or something and maybe that'll make them happy maybe it would I wonder if you could find because you said it was, was your building always an apartment building or was it like an office well, building? it was like an apartment hotel. Mm. So kind of like, I I imagine that there was like short-term stays or you could, or like long-term stays too. Uh, so. Old hotels, like your building's old. Yeah. And old hotels, I feel like have a lot of baggage. Oh, for sure. Because a lot of times people are, they are, they're under stressful circumstances or I don't know. Yeah. So, I, w- I want to know the history of your building. I, I want to know too. I've, I've seen a little bit of, of posts of, from people who like someone had found a postcard that had like the lounge from the building and uh, there were like commenting of like, and people who lived there like decades and decades ago. And apparently there used to be, like, a daycare in there. And, like, I imagine there were, there were, like, little businesses that faced, like, the main road. Sure, that makes sense. And, and yeah. And I found a picture on the historical, like, the Minnesota Historical Society website of the way that the building looked in, like, the 50s and 60s. Where it had this really cool sign that was attached to the front, which isn't there anymore. I don't know it, but for the most part, I imagine it's probably always looked about the same. Well, I'll just have to keep doing more research. Ask your ghost friend. Yeah, and ask them to write on the mirror, like after you take oh, a shower. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> like, dear ghost friend. Yeah. When did you live here? Yeah. What and... year do you think this is? <laughs> well, that's really cool and fun. Yeah. Yeah, that was the only kind of 
story I had that was podcast related. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, I don't have much to share either. Mm-hmm. Um, other than I am looking forward to today's case. Yes, I know. You seemed really, really stoked for this. So it's got to be a good one. I think it's a good one. I hope everyone else thinks it's a good one. Too. All right. Well, I guess I'm ready whenever you are. Okay. Okay, Chris. So it's only August, but my brain already is firmly fixated on Halloween. Ah, it is one of my favorite times of the year. It is my all-time favorite time of the year. All right. Um, like, I, I honestly don't care about Christmas. Like, <laughs> Halloween is my Christmas. It's my jam. Like, people, I, like, it, it bothers me that, like, in October they're selling like Christmas decorations, you know? Oh, okay, yeah. It's like give Halloween its time. But at the same time when like July fourth is finished, I'm like spooky, spooky stuff all the time. <laughs> Which is funny because at the bookstore, uh, we did start getting Halloween like children's Halloween books in July. So yeah. I guess you would be very happy I am over that. <laughs> um and with Halloween comes scary movies. I love scary movies. As do I. And one of the um, most infamous, I'd say, fan cult-like films is Candyman. Oh, yes. And Jordan Peele is re-releasing the revamped version. Uh, Oh, yeah. So he's doing, like, uh, um, an updated version, right? Yeah. Yep. And it is actually being released uh, this August 27th, just a week from, 10 days from now, actually. That is so exciting, because I, it's funny, because I did not see Candyman until I was much older, like, probably my late 20s. Okay. Even, so, I mean, and the original is so good. It is so good. I, I'm pretty sure I watched it at the age of, like, 10. Which is terrifying <laughs> to think but i mean when i was four i was watching beetlejuice so. <laughs> oh my gosh do you remember the beetlejuice cartoon yes i was obsessed with it i loved it yeah um so with the re revamped and release of the updated Candyman film i thought well since it's especially so relevant yeah i thought it would be a wonderful idea to discuss the murder and real life story that inspired the movie yes okay i did not know that there was a real life story behind this but i could definitely picture it so i'm so excited to hear what this story is do you know anything about it i don't know because i i just assumed that Candyman was just a totally fictional story but it sounds like I was mistaken. Well, I mean, it's not, it's not a ghost that will come through your mirror. Right? Yeah. There's not not the supernatural element, but I love that there is an actual case that this is based on. Yes. So, without further ado, this is going to be the story of the murder of Ruthie Mae McCoy, the murder that inspired Candyman. Ah, this is. This is going to be so interesting. I'm, I can already tell. So the 1992 film Candyman is nothing short of a modern horror classic. 
Based on Clive Barker's short story, The Forbidden, Candyman takes place in the Cabrini Green public housing development in Chicago and focuses on the themes of racial and social class inequalities and treatment within the metropolitan United States cities. While researching urban legends, Chicago Semiotics graduate student Helen Lyle learns of the Candyman, a spirit who, when a person says his name five times to a mirror, appears and kills the summoner by using a hook attached to a bloody stump on his right arm. Was it five times? Was it really that many? Mm-hmm. I always thought it was... I always thought it was three. That's Bloody Mary. Um, that's why... That's why I got the two confused. Which her her inspiration I will cover maybe someday too. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, so... This student learns from two cleaning ladies that Ruthie Jean, a resident in the notorious Cabrini Green housing project, is rumored to have been killed by the Candyman and discovers there have been 25 similar murders. With this, the movie unfolds to murder after murder by the hooked man coming at his victims from their very own bathroom mirrors. But with the cult classic being revamped this next week, let's learn all about the true horror story of police negligence, overcrowded public housing, and murderers crawling in through bathroom mirrors. I think this is especially good to revisit because that movie is not only scary as hell, but when I first watched it with my like film studies brain that I still have from college, I was like, oh my gosh, there is so much happening in this film where you're thinking about, you know, it, like equality and, and like all these other, and like social justice and all of this other stuff happening in tandem with this really, really scary story. And I think that is just, so cool. So after you're done listening to this episode, find a copy of The Candyman or see if it's streaming and watch it because it is definitely worth taking a look. And it's also a really cool time capsule of the early 90s. Yes, very much so. It's very, very different uh, view that of like cities than we have today, I feel like. Yes, and as you'll see... Um... Aside from the ghost legend of who Candyman was, mm-hmm. as you mentioned, all the like social inequalities yeah. and uh, racial inequalities, um, it all is very much true to the true story. Ooh, all right. Well, the Cabrini Green Housing Project um, was a real place designed in the late 1940s as a new means of affordable urban living. Cabrini Green contained about 15,000 residents during its first few years as a public housing unit. Within the next couple of decades, however, Cabrini Green and many others under the Chicago Housing Authority, which I'll refer to as CHA going forward, or CHA, (laughs) fell into disrepair when the city was unable to shell out the cost needed to maintain the developments for the units and the buildings. That's so sad because it seems like at, at the initial idea of it was really good. Like, good, affordable living spaces. Exactly. And, like, that that's such an amazing concept. 
But then it's like, if you don't put in the, the money and the effort to keep it up, of course, it's just going to fall into disrepair. And it's just like the, the quality of the housing goes down and the quality of life goes down and everybody loses. Right. And because it is catered to low income or out of work people, mm-hmm. rent is very cheap, if not free. So then the building owners and management, they're not making money, so they don't have money to go back into upkeep. Yeah. Um, so in the late 20th century, the Cabrini Green and projects like it all over Chicago became a testament to the city's callous neglect towards its poor residents and the stark differences between the classes in the city. Within Cabrini Green stood the high-rise public housing buildings referred to as ALBA, short for Jane Adams, Robert Brooks, Loomis Courts, and Grace Abbott Homes. And within ALBA lived Ruthie Mae McCoy. Ruthie was born in Hughes, Arkansas, one of eight children. When she was young, her family, like numerous Southern Black families then, moved to Chicago's south side looking for a more prosperous life. Ah, uh, part of that great migration. Yep. Yep. But the promise of the big city was sweeter than reality. Just scraping along was a challenge for a large family. Ruthie May's father loaded coal onto wagons in various yards, earning a meager wage. Ruthie attended Phillips High School for a little more than a year. Signs of mental illness began appearing when she was in her 20s. Her relatives say they don't know if the exact nature of her illness and offer only hazy accounts of how it showed itself. She talked to herself and would burst with anger unexpectedly. I feel like that's a lot of people, though. <laughs> I mean, that's me on a Sunday <laughs> afternoon. And just like, God, I'm so stupid. Why didn't I do that? And... Uh-huh. Her mother, a devout Baptist quote, chased us into church and taught us the way of the Lord, stated Ruthie's brother, Haywood McCoy. Her siblings proposed mainly spiritual explanations for what went on with Ruthie May. There's such a thing as a devil, you know, stated her sister Beatrice. And her brother uh, also said that when she got out of God was the reason for her mental illnesses. Ooh, that gets a little bit uncomfortable it there, is. where it's like, no, that's not what causes that. Right. Um, I mean, you know, religion may be a good, stable place for people to, like, seek help, but right? also yeah. help can come in medical ways right. as well. Yes, yes. I feel like this is uh, um, the thought of like, ah, you got a devil in you. Like, right. like that'll, we'll get the devil out and that'll fix you. Like, uh, or maybe you just have a chemical imbalance in your brain yeah, that you can't help. Yeah, and maybe some therapy and a pill will help that. <laughs> so Ruthie was never married, but when she was 27, she had her only child, Vernita. Um, Bernina's father did not stick around long, and his desertion left Ruthie bitter towards men. Vernita had to stay with relatives off and on as a child because her mother was institutionalized several times. She managed okay when she was taking her medicine, but when she wasn't, um, 
all of her, you know, like self-talk and anger outbursts oh, just resurface. Everything comes back. Ruthie worked some menial jobs throughout her life. A laundromat attendant, a housekeeper, but her mental health problems prevented her from holding a job more than a month or two. And she spent most of her adult life on aid. She and Vernita lived in Dearborn Homes, a south side of housing project, during Vernita's early years, and then cramped in to run-down apartments on the south side. When her basement apartment flooded at Humboldt Park, Ruthie applied for emergency CHA housing. She asked in one letter to CHA to be placed in the Wentworth Gardens on the south side near relatives. In another letter, she asked specifically not to be placed in a high-rise. But beggars can't be choosers, and when she was offered an 11th floor unit in the Abbott homes, she had no choice but to accept due out of need. I wonder why she didn't want to be... Do you think it was that she didn't want to be high up? Or do you like that maybe she had a fear of heights? So as you'll learn as we go on, um, in the 80s, a lot of the affordable housing or free housing that were high-rises were notoriously unkempt and dangerous. Oh, so it's like, I'm sure it's like, if there's a fire, I will die here. Exactly. Or, yeah, or or if, if, what if the elevator is out, like, I'm going to have to walk up Uh 11 flights of stairs, and that's the last thing I want to do. Especially for somebody who it sounds like is having a really hard time of even just like keeping a job. It's like now you got to worry about <laughs> exhausting yourself on uh-huh. top of that. Yeah. So interesting that you brought that up because the place where Ruthie May was offered by CHA uh, percolated with violence. About 3,600 people lived in the Abbott homes, most of them younger than 18. And except for a few top drug pushers, everybody was deeply in, uh, impoverished. The 1980 census reported that families on average in this building were pulling in just $4,500 a year. And the time- A year? Yes. Holy- So like a whole family. That is insane. I mean, I know adjusting for like prices of the time- would would be less but oh my gosh i cannot imagine even 30 years ago living on less than five thousand dollars uh-huh for a year yeah so about 85 percent of the families were headed by females uh because there's a lot of single like sing- moms. single moms yep on their grind trying to raise a family And the lucky few of the Abbott Homes uh, residents, which was about 600 people, resided in 33 two-story row houses. Uh, The thousands of others uh, called one of the seven high-rises their home. So residents of the ABLA houses were often beaten, raped, and murdered more than twice as often than they were citywide. Wow, so this was a dangerous spot to be. Uh-huh. And it's like, you couldn't help it. It's just like where you live. You and didn't like, really have another option. They didn't, these people did not have an option. And it was, it was the only way to survive. 
if they weren't murdered. Yeah. Which... Oh, that's so scary. So Ruthie's first two years in the Abbott home, uh, she shared her two-bedroom apartment with Bernita uh, and Bernita's boyfriend, Louis Butler. However, Ruthie and Louis Butler did not seem eye to eye. Quote, at first she liked me, but then she started comparing me with Bernita's father, Butler stated. Um, and he claims that Ruthie compared him to Bernita's father, who had um, abandoned them. Uh, so it's just like, uh, here's another no good man who's just going to leave you when the, when the going gets tough. Right. Um, he went on to say that Ruthie often vocalized that she thought all black men were no good and that all they wanted to do was flirt and run around. In 1985, largely because of the tension between Butler and Ruthie, Bernita and her boyfriend moved out, leaving Ruthie May alone. Bernita's departure depressed Ruthie May. Neighbors said she especially missed seeing her daughter and she grew more ornery towards people in the project, especially children. She gave no mind to those who blasted their radios in the hallways, threatening them with a cane that she carried with her. They in turn threatened and ridiculed her. Police had to intervene several times when Ruthie got into a scrape, but by the time they were on the scene, it was hard to tell who had started what. Wow, so she sounded like a tough broad, like... Mm -hmm. She was the one, she would be causing fights and stuff in the hallway. Yeah, I read numerous times that, like, she would just go through and she gave no, no second thought of speaking her mind and criticizing people's actions and behaviors. Well, and how, and do we know, like, roughly what stage of life she's in here? Because it sounds like she's got an adult, like, her child is an adult. Yep, so. So she's she's, got to be older um, by then. So at this time in the mid-80s, she's, like. 50. Okay. So, uh, you'll... So not, not super old, but... Right. Middle age. Not super young. Right. Um, living in this environment, she was in constant fear of being mugged or burglarized. She had her lock changed by the CHA at least twice according to housing records. She seemed obsessed with locks because several neighbors described how she would roam the 11th floor hallway turning doorknobs and lecturing tenants whose doors she found unlocked. Okay, that's really creepy that she was, like, just rattling people's doorknobs. Like, okay. Mm -hmm. I mean, it sounds like it was well-intentioned. Yeah. Because she knew the environment wasn't safe. She wanted her neighbors to be safe. But also, like, if I'm sitting on the couch and my door just swings open... Yeah. And then some lady comes in and starts yelling at also, me. Also, like, you don't know if they're naked behind their door. <laughs> right. I mean, who knows? Um, and often people said if you heard a car alarm blaring, chances were it wasn't a real thief, but Ruthie trying to see if her neighbors were vigilantly locking their cars as well. Uh, it sounds like it's a stressful enough environment, <laughs> right. but... Then you also have to like deal with car alarms going off mm-hmm. constantly just because they're being tested. And it's also it's like if you're always testing them, then how are you going to know when it's the real thing? Exactly. Living alone aggravated Ruthie's fears and intensified her mental problems. She began eating irregularly and her weight dropped quickly. 
Her behavior was becoming more bizarre. Neighbors informed Vernita when she visited Alba that in the wintertime, Ruthie was seen lying in the snow wearing nothing but underwear or like shorts and a t-shirt, making oh. snow angels. Maybe she was having hot flashes. Well, in contrast, on hot summer days, she would wear winter clothing and several pairs of pants. Okay, now that I can't account for. No. So that's her mental state. Something's something's wrong. Yes. Um, and it's going to get a little worse. Oh, okay. By 1987, the then 52-year-old Ruthie Mae McCoy was still living alone in apartment 1109. She was still seen as an ornery old lady with a mean streak, suffering from obvious mental illnesses. However, in the final few months of her life, she seemingly was working her way out of the paranoia that so dutifully followed her. Neighbors reported that she was more pleasant than ever before. Reportedly, she'd been working with a psychiatric clinic in the neighborhood. She'd been going back to school, and most important of all, she was receiving a not insignificant sum of money that she would hopefully save to find a way out of the high-rise projects and be closer to her family on the south side. Isn't that amazing how a little bit of financial security can totally change your whole outlook? Yeah. I mean, it's it's obviously more than just that. There's a couple things working in conjunction, like the fact that she's going back to school and that's like keeping her mind occupied. She's working with the psychiatric clinic so it's like all these really good things are happening for her but most of all like a little bit of financial stability goes so far i feel exactly yes ruthie regularly visited the psychiatric clinic at mount sinai hospital in chicago she was transported to and from the clinic in a van with other patients on april 22nd 1987 ruthie told a woman she was riding in the van with that she believed someone had threatened her life. The woman urged Ruthie to tell someone at the clinic, but she didn't want to get anyone else involved. And she was aware of her mental uh, conditions, and she wasn't sure that if the threat was real or just a hallucination. Oh, gosh. that See, that would be a whole new layer of things to consider. Be like, well, one, you live in an area that is notoriously dangerous, but then also... You're dealing with your mental health and how do you know if what's what threats are real and what ones are not? That's a that's a scary place to be. Yeah, I can't imagine. That's like taking acid and then like swimming with the sharks. Be like, are they really <laughs> there or is this just the acid kicking in? Or taking acid and like swimming with goldfish and like <laughs> like are these goldfish really piranhas? <laughs> Um, so on said day of April 22nd, 1987, Ruthie arrived back at her 11th floor apartment and went about her night as usual after an afternoon spent at the hospital. That is until about 8.45 p.m. when she made a call to 911. This is a transcript of the 911 call according to an article from the Chicago Reader. Ruthie. I'm a resident at 1440 West 13th Street, and some people next door are totally tearing this down, you know? What are they doing, ma'am? They want to break in? Yeah, they throwed the cabinet down. From where? I'm in the projects. I'm on the other side. You can reach 
can reach my bathroom. They want to come through the bathroom. Oh my gosh, this is so creepy. All right, ma'am. What's the address? 1440 West 13th Street, apartment 1109. The elevator's working. 1109? All right. What's your name, ma'am? Ruth McCoy. And then I ended with dispatcher. All right, I'll send you the police. So notice how Ruthie mentioned that the elevator's working. That's because in this apartment building, the elevator almost never worked. So when it was, it was important to note. Yeah, oh my gosh. Um, and again, that's just like the lack of funding. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And the, and like, the scare, like, the, the thing that's so scary is like, and I'm sure it, she was probably, it probably sounded very panicked. Because mm-hmm. she's describing someone coming through the wall, basically. Right. She's like, they throwed, like her words, they throwed down the mirror. Yeah. That like the, I'm assuming the medicine cabinet uh-huh. or whatever. And then like thinking about the scenes in the film that correspond with like the hidden space behind the mirror exactly absolutely terrifying (laughs) which that makes me think of so in in a lot of old uh homes and apartment buildings there is if you have like an old medicine cabinet like one that's mounted in like into the wall if you open it up a lot of times they have a little slit in the back of the of, of the medicine cabinet and that's where you would put your razors uh-huh. when you were done with them, which is weird because it's like they just go into the wall. Yeah, I've I've seen so many articles of or like YouTube videos where like people open up their wall to like remodel and it's oh, just yeah. filled with razor blades. Which is just it's really spooky and like kind of eerie, even though it's just, you know, yeah, it's just from people shaving for years and years. But what an odd thing to ever think of. Like, let's put a hole in the wall so yeah. we don't have to walk two feet to a trash can. Yeah. Well, and I suppose <laughs> you shouldn't be throwing away, like, razor blades in the regular trash so no one would get, would, like, accidentally, like, reach into I the guess. trash. And, but it seems like there's got to be a better disposable disposal method rather than just, like, well, that's going in the wall forever. <laughs> but it just... However, it's very convenient. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, but it does make me think of that. And then it's scary to think of, like, opening the wall and a bunch of rusty old razor blades are just waiting. Well, the dispatcher was confused with what exactly was going on in Ruthie Mae's apartment, as I think anyone would be. So um, they sent a car to her location with the report that there had been a disturbance with a neighbor. Because honestly, it kind of sounds like that. Like, yeah. you're in an apartment and you're saying someone's coming through the wall. I mean, it doesn't... I mean, that doesn't sound like a disturbance with a neighbor, mm-hmm. but it doesn't sound like a normal murder plot, like yeah. you know, or, attempted murder. I don't or, know. Or or like a normal disturbance. I, I mean, yeah, I, guess. I feel like if it's if it, if you're the dispatcher and it's like, oh, I've got this menu of options to pick from. I'm like, well, this one is the closest. Yeah. Because I assume, I I assume the dispatcher the. The best thing that they can do is prepare the officers who are going to respond for what the situation is. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, I guess that's probably the closest thing that they could come up with. Well, because of this classification, 
The officer uh, sent to Ruthie was not in a hurry and had not arrived at the apartment by the time another 911 call came in from the apartment building. At 9.02, a woman called and said she was walking through the hallway and heard gunshots coming from inside apartment 11.09. Yikes. Two minutes later at 9.04, another neighbor called, reporting gunshots and shouting from apartment 11.09. By this time, four officers had arrived at the door of Ruthie's apartment. They knocked multiple times, but no one answered the door. The officers decided to call her phone, and then they stood there and listened to it ring over and over and over with no answer. They tried to get a key to the door, but could not find the correct one. Oh, gosh. Again, probably just who cared to keep the keys, the spare keys in order? You know, even something as simple as that wasn't well kept, much less the elevator working regularly and reliably. And, you know, the whole space being, like, secure and safe. Just, like, so little care seems to have been given where like you can't can't even find a damn key i know they then tried to talk to neighbors which didn't help much most neighbors did not answer and some said they had no idea that there were even gunshots because they didn't hear them oh weird another neighbor said that an old woman lives in 1109 and that she always opens the door so they were concerned she might have opened it to the wrong person. Oof. If so, Chris, I ask you, if you were an officer in this situation, what would you do next? I mean, I would think that if you can't get into that apartment any other way, I guess the next thing would be to knock the door down, you'd think. You'd think. But these officers just left. They just left. They just they're left. like, okay, well, whatever the disturbance is, it's clearly, it's already done. Yeah. Like, they don't think that it's weird that there's someone who always opens the door and... They're not. They're not doing that. After they place a 911 call. Yeah. That seems like, it, it, it very much seems like, a, well, we have, like, plausible deniability that anything even happened so we're not gonna get all caught up into it because it'll be just more paperwork or something like that and i imagine there probably was not a lot of care given to the residents of the projects because it was just you know oh you know things happen here every day they were poor people of color living in a crime riddled uh environment which yes yeah it's so yeah it's so sad and really upsetting and uh like and it hasn't really even changed that much i feel like that we're still dealing with the same problem uh today yep so the next day deborah lazley called the police She lived on the same floor as Ruthie and claimed that Ruthie stopped by every single morning and afternoon on her way in and out of the building, but she had not that day. After all the commotion from the night before, Deborah put the two and two together and decided something was very wrong. Also, she's a little bit, I mean, she's not, again, she's not super old, but 
what if there had been a medical emergency even? Like, mm-hmm. what if she had fallen and, and knocked herself unconscious? Right. Like, she could have been just, like, laying there bleeding out from, like, a head injury or something. Like, even that is worth checking on. So this time, six police officers and five security guards from the complex went to Ruthie's apartment and tried knocking again. Um, With no answer, this time the police finally decided that they should break down the door. However, security guards discouraged them, saying that if nothing was wrong, the tenant could sue. Which is true. Um, So once again, they left. I'll have to tell you this story about one night when I when the uh, the police knocked down my door, or maybe it was the fire department. It's it's been a while, but I've literally had my apartment door broken down before. I would love to hear that yes. story. Okay. So the next day, Deborah Laisley brought her concerns to the business office at the complex, and they finally got a carpenter to drill through the lock. Upon entering, they found Ruthie. She was lying on her side on the bedroom floor. She had one hand on her chest, one of her shoes was off, and there were papers and coins strewn all around her. She was lying in a pool of blood. When they later turned her over, slightly, the police reported that the smell of decay had began to rise through the apartment. Ruthie had been shot four times, once in the shoulder, once in the left thigh, once in the abdomen, in which the bullet passed through her liver, and once through her right upper arm, which traveled into her chest um, and impaling her pulmonary artery. Oh, there's no surviving that. No, and they believe that that was the fatal shot. Yeah. I mean, we can only hope that it was really a quick demise because I can't imagine a worse fate than just, like, laying there like not knowing if help is going to come and obviously like help didn't come in time Mm -hmm. i mean it's in situations like that you wonder like if they had responded quickly like would they have been able to save her but if one of them went through that major artery there was probably no saving her right which is um noted uh in the report that due to the extent of her injuries uh, Ruthie probably would have not survived being transported to the hospital, even if the police went right away. Yeah. At the time, reports claimed that there was no indication of an intruder forcing their way in, and that Ruthie probably knew and let in the person or people who killed her, despite the original 911 call. That's like one of those uh, kind of mysteries where, where it's like, the doors are locked, but you've got a you've got a deceased person. Like, how did the person get in? Like, there was no way, there's no way that like they would have been seen like leaving or something like that. Where it's just like, how do you like how do you begin to start unraveling this mystery? Mm-hmm. Well, crimes from the Cabrini Green Housing Project were rarely ever in the news or paper. Mm-hmm. But finally, a Tribune article posted the real story that Ruthie had been murdered by someone who entered through a medicine cabinet in her bathroom wall. That is so freaking creepy. 
This raised many questions. What kind of place she was living in that someone could break in through a medicine cabinet? And also, why did the police not break in right away? Mm-hmm. So as stated, because of the apparent violence in this complex, Ruthie's story was not a major headline. People in this building, according to the Chicago Reader, had, quote, thrown babies out of windows, shoved bodies down elevator chutes, and busted through walls to rob, rape, and murder people before. To the people that lived in the building, there was nothing unusual about what happened to Ruthie. People had been breaking in through medicine cabinets in this building for years, to the extent that many residents would put furniture in front of their bathroom doors at night and would keep buckets by their bedside to relieve themselves in attempts to avoid entering their own bathrooms. Oh my gosh, that's so frightening. I know. You can't even use the whole room of your house. And like you have to barricade your bathroom door at night. Yeah. It's insane. I'm surprised that nobody like done booby traps or something like. Yeah. A bunch of rusty nails on the other side of the medicine. Home Alone Yeah, yeah. See, unfortunately, Home Alone came too late for for this case. According to the building's custodian, the building was constructed in an unusual way to allow for easy maintenance. Each apartment was connected to an adjacent apartment through a hole behind the medicine cabinet. This easy access to the inner walls was well intended as an effort to make electrical and pipe repairs much easier. But once a person was inside the wall, it was very easy to move up or down a floor to other apartments in the building as well. According to the custodian, it was the way to go from one apartment to another, even if you're not killing anybody. That, I just imagine, be like, oh, hey, come on over. Like, I'm <laughs> like two floors uh, away and then just be like, oh, yeah, I'll just let myself in through the medicine cabinet. Uh-huh. And then you don't even have to go Elevator's through the broken. So yeah, I yeah. Know. Oh, that's, that's so weird. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, it sounds like well-intended, but... Uh, like any any way that you could like get from one person's apartment to another without them knowing is so uh, super sketch. Yeah. So the first lead investigation by the police was obviously looking into apartment eleven oh eight because that was the adjacent apartment and where her bathroom mirror butted up against mm-hmm. to. It was being rented, but it was not occupied by its renter, which was not uncommon for these buildings because many drug dealers uh, would use these rented-out empty apartments as a place for exchanges. Oh. I mean, that's a great front. Like, especially if you've got multiple locations, it's like then if someone comes looking for you, the chances of them finding you at any given spot is rare. Like, like, the odds are better in your favor that they're not going to find you. Right. If they mean you harm. Police talked to a man named Tim Brown, who claimed to have been hanging out in 1108 for most of the day with a man named Corey Florney. He said they were later joined by Ronald Coleman, Edward Turner, and John Hondras. Uh, Tim Brown says he witnessed Coleman showing Turner and Hondras how to enter the adjacent apartment through a hole behind the mirror. At some point, Florney and Coleman left, and Tim Brown was alone with Turner and Hondras. 
Tim Brown witnessed Turner and Hondras break through the mirror, heard several gunshots, and then saw them coming back through the wall with a TV and in a designer rocking chair. Really? Like, was it really worth that to murder someone over? I mean, these people were very impoverished. They were desperate. Yeah, and who knows? They could probably, like, pawn it, Mm -hmm. get a little bit of money for it. So following this information given by Tim Brown, John Hondras and Edward Turner were arrested for the murder of Ruthie Mae McCoy, as well as charges of home invasion, armed robbery, armed violence, and residential burglary. Hondras was 22, while Turner was just 19. Gosh, such young kids, and they're messing around with guns, and it's just, it's so sad, because it's like, that is a cycle that will just keep repeating. And then it's like, well, of course, they're going to go into the criminal justice system. Mm-hmm. They're going to get ground up. And then, like, if they ever get to see the light of day again, they've got nothing to show for all those years that they wasted. Mm-hmm. However, although Tim Brown gave all this information, mm-hmm. there were discrepancies. He had first tried to say that he wasn't there that day. Then that the break-in didn't happen until 11.30 p.m. And then that the door had been left unlocked so they could go back later and collect shell casings, which was true, proved untrue by the fact that police could not enter the apartment when they arrived mm-hmm. following Ruthie May's 911 calls. At trial, Tim Brown changed his story again, saying this time that it was Hondras and Coleman that broke in and not Edward Turner at all. However, Turner's girlfriend testified that he came to her apartment that evening of Ruthie May's murder and bragged that he had shot someone. Oh, goodness. So witnesses were all over the place. The following is a summary of what Tim Brown said and that he presented in court. He said he was in number 1108 when he heard several gunshots next door. He ran down to the lobby. Hondras came down there alone 30 minutes after everyone else. He'd only been trying to brag to his girlfriend when he said that he had shot someone and that he didn't mean it. At 2 a.m., he went back to the hallway of apartments 1108 and 1109 and saw a TV sitting outside. A new person who we are just now hearing about um, with the last name of Belder was coming out of number 1108 with the rocking chair. Belder asked for help with carrying either item. Ed Turner notified number 1109's door was ajar, so he took a peek in. He saw a body in the bedroom. He came back out to help with the TV. This is when Hondras came out of 1108. Belder put down the rocking chair and walked away. Hondras picked up the chair. He acknowledged going around to the various apartments after trying to stash the items. So, like, it was, like, a very disorganized statement of what happened that mm -hmm. night after he had already changed his story. Yeah. Like, multiple times. Also, I bet he probably wants to avoid implicating himself in any way. And and it makes me wonder if he was actually involved a little bit more than he led on to. Mm Mm-hmm. So, um... 
something really, really disappointing and really frustrating and unfortunate is that because of the dis- disorganization of this entire trial, mm-hmm. like witnesses that were like very like back and forth, there's no concrete evidence, everything is circumstantial. Um, Honders and Turner were found not guilty. Really? Yes. Oh, that's that's shocking. Right. Um, I, it was very shocking to me because these are two young black men living in a crime-ridden, like, drug-infested situation, and it was the 80s where... You'd think that it would be kind of like the system would be really indifferent to them and their circumstances, and it would be like... Well, they probably did it, you know, so even though we're not sure, we'll still throw the book at you. Yeah. Uh, but I guess just because, but, like, everything was so, like... Yeah. So, like, like, well, it seems like a, a lot of the case was based on just witnesses. And it was. There's, there like, no evidence taken. There's, like... Which is so... Which is, like, come on. Where's, where's the police work in this? Exactly. Like, there's like, got to be some sort of... I mean, because... It was the late 80s. Like, I'm sure there could have been, like, DNA evidence. DNA was a thing by then. Or, like, what about the weapon? Like, what? I don't know. I it's, know. It just seems like there's so many things that would be easy to implicate somebody if they if they worked at it. Yeah. But then again, I'm, that's probably, like, the police work put into it was probably proportional to the amount of care that they gave exactly. to this whole case. Exactly. Which is horrible because like Ruthie's life mattered. Like mm-hmm. who like even if she was an ornery that like she was still like that doesn't she mean She was a mom. She was yeah. a sister. Yeah, she was I mean. so much more than that. And then also the fact that like it seemed like things were going a little bit better for her and to have that all cut short is so tragic. Yeah. Which she had recently purchased this missing rocking chair and missing TV because, you know, she'd have like some, some more income coming in. Yeah. So it's believed that whoever broke in and sold this stuff, they probably witnessed her bringing home these Uh newer expensive things. And that's the thing with, with the, the method of entry coming in through the wall, it's like all of the neighbors are suddenly suspects mm-hmm. because it's got to be somebody Someone who that... had access to the to the walls. Exactly. And who else than this Tim Brown who rents out 1108. Yeah, right next door. Yeah. And just, it seems very suspicious and I, I it seems very likely that they would have been the ones responsible. Mm-hmm. So with Honderson Turner found not guilty and no other suspects, the case went cold. And to this day, no one else has ever been charged in connection with Ruthie's murder. <sighs> so sad. And of course, you can't get tried for the same crime exactly. twice. Yep. So unless they commit some other crime, they're never going to get punished for or they're never gonna get the uh yeah like the sentence that they deserve for taking a life Mm -hmm. 
Ruthie Mae McCoy was laid to rest in Homewood, Illinois, a southern suburb of Chicago, on April 30th, 1987. A few relatives, including her daughter, uh, grandchildren, uh, brothers, and sisters, attended a church service that was held for her on the south side of Chicago. On her bulletin displayed at the service read the quote, Life was hard for Ruthie May. Oh, that is just devastating. Which it was hard, and it, it sucks that, like, she was giving her best, and just when things were looking up, mm-hmm. it was cut short. So the ABLA housing complex once held over 17,000 residents. But due to redevelopment, only 2,100 residents remained in the late 80s. Throughout the late 90s and early 2000s, the Little little Italy neighborhood and inner city Chicago in general underwent a significant period of gentrification, resulting in almost all of the Chicago Housing Authority's projects being demolished or slated for redevelopment. The nearby University Village redevelopment of the General Maxwell Street neighborhood and the expansion of the South Campus of University of Illinois at Chicago also contributed to what would become the end of ABLA. With the gentrification came a new influx of money. Public housing was torn down in a quest to make room for higher income renters. Ugh. Spurred by prospect of new money, the public discourse at the time centered on, quote, welfare queens and the urban poor, and grants given to municipalities for tearing down high-rise public housing buildings and replacing them with more expensive, smaller developments, sometimes worth tens of millions of dollars. It was a fight against the city of Chicago versus the thousands of working-class families simply trying to stay afloat. The battle took more than 20 years, but in 2010, the last resident of the original Cabrini-Green housing project was taken to court by the city when she refused to leave her high-rise home of 20 years, and she was assigned a new unit in Chicago's South Side neighborhood. I feel like it's like if you're going to clear out, like somebody's making a ton of money off of this redevelopment, Mm -hmm. but it's like hey, it, like, share the wealth then. Like, you're you're kicking me out of the only home that I've got. Like, you better, like, put me somewhere nice. Like, exactly. I... But, you know, they're just... They're just shipped off to another low-income yeah, housing unit. And it's just a shame to be like, well, like, if, if it's an eyesore, well maybe reinvest in it and be like make better nicer like low-income housing and then it won't seem like such a dump and then people will take pride in their in their neighborhood again but it's just so sad that that they the neglect of the city just led to them being basically ghettoized that you know they get the worst housing. They get treated the worst. They get the worst police uh, experiences, it seems, mm-hmm. that they're not even willing to, like, 
check in on you if you call and they just don't answer. Yeah, so, I mean, there's where the whole um, aspect of, like, racial and social inequality comes into the story. And the whole, like, getting in through the walls. Yeah. That makes me want to watch the movie again, though. So, uh, I'm really excited now for this this new version to come out this month. Mm-hmm. I I would be willing to go to the theater for that. <laughs> well, Chicago's decade-long struggle to redevelop the former site of the Cabrini-Green public housing development came one small step closer to finishing on Tuesday of this past week, August 10th, 2021. Mm-hmm. After an advisory panel voted to spend another $600 million dollars on the neighborhood's gentrification project over the next 12 years. Wow, so does that mean they're just doubling down on on their willingness to just spend more money on yep. higher-end housing? Yep, exactly. For God's sake. Well, I hope their new places are haunted as <laughs> hell because, like, they, they, I don't know, they just don't deserve to be pushed out. And, mm-hmm. and like, you just, you, we, you, you see what happens whenever gentrification happens. It's just all of the heart of the neighborhood and all of the, the the people who have made that their home, they're the one they're the first ones to get swept out because they can't afford it anymore. Exactly. And then where do they have to go? It just you keep pushing people uh, who can't afford these high end Places into smaller and smaller spaces and guess what that increases competition for those already like scarce spaces and then it just makes that more expensive exactly. because demand is so high mm-hmm. i mean i feel like that's happening in even in minneapolis right now every city it's happening yeah where it's it's like when i gosh when i moved here rent didn't seem that bad but like I'm really fortunate because I've stayed in the same place for so long. It hasn't gone up that much. But, man, if I were to leave my apartment and, like, try to find something similar, I'd be paying, like, twice as much. Exactly. Yep. Which is just insanity. So. Perhaps Ruthie's story would have been forgotten had Candyman not hit theaters just a few years later. Not only did the film feature similar details to her murder, such as the Chicago projects and the real-life setting of Cabrini Green, but one of Candyman's victims was named Ruthie. Oh yeah, that was a good that was a good element there. And a central character in the movie bores the surname McCoy. Oh, that's right. All so right. it's almost like the creator of Candyman was kind of like. Paying tribute to Ruthie May. Yes. Which is really nice. I mean, I hope they weren't just, like, capitalizing on her murder, Mm -hmm. which is possible. But because they tied in the name Ruthie and the name McCoy, I feel like maybe they were, like, honoring her. Yeah, it was, like, a nod to real events. Mm -hmm. And honestly, that helps it feel even more real. Yes, for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, So, with that being said... Um, that was the, the real story of a murder of someone coming through a bathroom mirror. 
and taking someone's life when they least expected it. Wow. That is... uh, It's just... I'm gonna I'm gonna barricade my bathroom door tonight. <laughs> well, you have your ghost. You gotta yeah. let them out. Oh right, yeah. <laughs> Thankfully, my bathroom is like in the middle of my apartment. Yeah. I guess. So there's, there's there's no, no space way. for anyone yeah. to come through that mirror. Definitely not. De- definitely a different construction method. Uh-huh. But uh, wow, that I am so glad you shared that story because I would have never heard it any other way. I don't think. Well. I first heard about it on the podcast, My Favorite Murder. Ooh, classic. Um, okay. Yes. Uh, but uh, these are my sources for this week's episode. Cool. Uh, the main one that I got is this wonderful, wonderful article from the Chicago Reader by Steve Bogira titled, They Came In Through the Bathroom Mirror. That just sounds chilling. Yeah. I mean, if I saw that article, I would definitely read it. Uh, there was another wonderful write-up by Vernita Vegara um, from titled Ruthie Mae McCoy, The Chilling True Case Behind Candyman. Uh, the episode Spooky, uh, which I love, uh, they covered this story, episode 126, which I re-listened to that episode. And then there is the city panel approved $600 million to finish... Cabrini Green Redevelopment, uh, and that was from Block Club Chicago. And then, in addition to that, um, there were too many to count, but there's multiple, multiple YouTube videos. If you just type in Ruthie Mae McCoy on YouTube, you'll find lots of wonderful uh, short and long videos on oh, this case. Oh, okay. So, that is where I got my sources. Wow. Man, I, I just don't know how what... At this point, what justice would look like for that circumstance? I, as, I mean, it's there. You can't try Hondras uh, and um, his accomplice again, you know, again for it. Mm-hmm. And I feel like with the building gone and then getting demolished, and and who knows how many people who were witnesses. I, and living it and like living in that building at the time, like how many of those people are are dead now? I mean, because it's been over thirty years, right? And they're like, I'm sure a lot of those witnesses are long gone, and mm-hmm. and there's just no way to re like re put the pieces back together. And also something that made me think of is in this community that was so neglected mm-hmm. by multiple systems, by multiple forms of authority. Mm-hmm. Why would they want to talk to police? Oh, yeah. Why would they want to cooperate? Because the police never cared about them before. Yeah. Why should they help them when they don't help, you know, vice versa? Yeah, exactly. So it's just the the trust is just obliterated. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's going to, it would take generations to regain that trust. And it's like, we're not, we're not even seeing enough effort being made now in the wake of all of these other, like, social injustices. Yeah, injustices. So, I guess we'll see. Maybe there'll be like a, maybe that's one of those ones that'll be a deathbed confession or something. I hope so. I really, really do. Which, I mean, for the family it would be a relief to know, like, finally know the truth. Um, but as a true crime 
aficionado, like, I just want to know. I got to yeah, know. And, and I don't want it to be a Beth Day confession. Like, I yeah. want them to get caught now. Right, yeah. So that way they can serve. Yeah, like, if they if they get caught doing something else and then it comes out that they, they did, like, if they get caught doing a burglary or something. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Well, excellent choice. I am stoked to get back to the movie theater now. Thanks to this, it's uh, it's really got me excited for the new Candyman. Yes, and it's by Jordan Peele, which you know yes, it's going to be wonderful. It's going to be so good. Uh, but to everyone out there, if you have not seen the original Candyman, yes. I highly suggest you go watch it. Yes, I can never. Whenever I see sweets for the sweet mm-hmm. on anything. You know, like, I know it's meant to be cute, but, man, it just only makes me think of that movie. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, uh, that being said, I believe I'm going to watch the original this evening. There we go. And we know from previous episodes how much I love the theater. Yes. So I'm sure I will be seeing Candyman sometime soon. Yeah, we'll have to do a little uh, film critics review corner element to our our podcast so oh well i can't wait so well i can't wait to hear our listeners thoughts on this yes please send us messages on instagram or facebook uh, at dark and devious podcast or email us at dark and devious podcast at gmail.com fabulous well until next time then bye. bye And check your medicine cabinet.